Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Enjoying the frozen tundra that is Markham today? Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to be here to continue our study in the book of James. Uh, I'm actually especially excited because uh, my son's name is James. And uh, Cynthia and I, we named him after this particular book of the Bible because, uh, well, for one, Cynthia, it was very helpful for her in a particular season in her life. And it's been our prayer for James that he would grow up to be a man of faith and a wise leader in the church, just like the James in the Bible. See, James, uh, the writer of this book, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, we learn in Acts chapter 12 and 15 that After Peter left Jerusalem to start new churches abroad, James stayed in this church, and he became one of the wisest leaders and one of the pillars of the community until he was martyred for his faith. But just before his death, he wrote this book. And he wrote this book not only for the church in Jerusalem, but he wanted to uh, talk to all the churches around the world. And he wanted to remind them what it really meant to live a wise life which meant to him was what it really meant to live out Jesus' central teaching, which was to love God and love your neighbor. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look into uh, James chapter 2. We'll we'll focus on uh, verses 14 to 26, but we'll we'll be kind of scattered throughout, but hopefully we can track this today. So can you just bow with me? I would like to pray just briefly for you and for myself. Thank you. Uh, Father, um, Lord, your loving kindness, it never ceases. Uh, Your your compassion, it never fails. It is new every morning, just like this morning. Great, great is your faithfulness. Holy Spirit, I pray right now for all of us here that you would truly open the eyes of our hearts. Would you speak into the depth of our soul to remind us of you, Jesus, to remind us of the gospel, to remind us what it truly means to love God, to love our neighbors. Father, help me as I preach. Help me to preach with meekness. Help me not to fear. Help me not to want the praise of man. Lord, help me just to please you right now. Now may the, the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart truly please you, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, let's, all get, let's get right into the text, okay? So we're going to start in verse 14. It's up on the screen right behind me. This is what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, so what's happening here? Verse 24 basically summarizes this entire passage. It says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so I'm hoping and I'm thinking that some of you might be be feeling a little uncomfortable right now because you've likely learned that Christianity teaches that we're actually saved by our beliefs and not by what we do. That teaching comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter three, verse 28. He says, a person is justified by faith apart from works. What's going on? Is James right? Is Paul right? Because it kind of looks like they're contradicting each other, doesn't it? All right, let's close in prayer. (laughs) No, here's what's happening, okay? The word justified, okay, the word justified comes from the Greek word dekaio, dekaio. It is the same word that both James and Paul uses. However, they're both using it in different ways. We do this all the time in in, in the English language. Look at this sentence, okay? Frank wanted to present Sonia with her present, but decided it wasn't a good idea at the present time. Most of us understand that, right? We all understand what it's saying, even though the word present said in three different ways. In a similar fashion, Paul and James, they're using the word justified to argue their points, but in two different ways. Now, in the case of Paul, justified means, listen to me, what he means is to make right. In other words, Paul is arguing that a person is made right with God through his or her belief alone. Now, on the other hand, James is using the word justified. He, what, it, what he's saying is he's using it to, to mean to prove right. So what James is saying is that a person is proven to be right with God by what he or she does. See, Christianity teaches that there is actually nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We are made right with God simply because we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Our belief should naturally start producing active life change. Not only is our beliefs reoriented, but our actions should soon follow. And it's how we believe, how we behave in this new life that will prove that we really do believe in God, that we have a living faith. Martin Luther said it this way, quote, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Stephen Curry, many of you know who he is, is a professional future Hall of Fame basketball player who arguably revolutionized the the way that basketball is played today. In 2013, Curry was beginning his offseason where, where his team, the Golden State Warriors, had just went to the Western Conference champions, semifinals. At this point 
at this point in his career, he wasn't really considered like a superstar yet. Like he was very, very good, but he wasn't really considered as like a franchise player. Curry was also sponsored by Nike at this time, but his endorsement deal was expiring that summer. And Nike owned the first opportunity to resign him. So in August of that year, Curry and his father met with Nike representatives to talk about his future. To their surprise, the meeting was not led by Lynn Merritt, Nike's famed power broker. Instead, Nike had sent Nico Harrison, he's a relatively unknown sports marketing director, to run the meeting. During the opening introduction, one of the Nike officials accidentally addressed Stefan as Stefan. And no one from Nike caught it, and no one made a correction. It got worse from there. They presented a PowerPoint that featured Kevin Durant's name on the slides, which was left on by accident, presumably because they were just repurposing the slides for Curry. From that moment on, Curry was done with Nike. The company said that they believed in Curry's talents, but their actions showed something completely different. So in comes Under Armour. There were new players in the basketball world and were trying to really build up this uh, part of their business portfolio. After watching Curry play, they were convinced he was gonna be a superstar. So some smart people in that organization came up with an, an ingenious plan to lure Curry to their brand. First, they found out who was sitting beside Curry in the stall, in the locker room. His name was Kent Bazemore. He was an undrafted rookie playing his first season with the Warriors. This guy wasn't even guaranteed a spot on the team, okay? Second thing they did, they began to shower Bazemore with all these merchandise, swags, and gifts in the locker room. It became so much that Bazemore had to actually start giving it away to all the staff because he couldn't fit it in his small apartment. This was a rookie, think about it, it was a rookie. No one else on the team was getting more swag than this guy. When Curry saw this overwhelming expression of generosity and kindness to a rookie of all people, he decided to set up a meeting with Under Armour. And at that meeting, he said to them, quote, you guys are doing this stuff for Bazemore. What are you going to be doing for me? And that was the start of Curry's endorsement deal with Under Armour that now has amassed billions of dollars in revenue. See, what Under Armour did and what Nike failed to do was to justify, to prove that they were all in for Curry. See, according to James, we may say we believe in God, but it really is by our actions, how we live, that will prove if we really are all in for Jesus, that our faith is living and is not dead. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have a living faith? Well, James gives two powerful examples of what that looks like. Let's look at the first one. It starts in verse 21. It says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So in Genesis, God calls a man named Abraham to begin his plan to rescue and bless 
the, a world that's gone awry because of sin. And it would be through Abraham's family line that this would occur. However, Abraham, he didn't have any children. And his wife, Sarah, was barren. But God promised, one day, one day, Abraham, you will have a son. And after decades and decades of waiting, Isaac came, and God's promise came true. But then for some reason, God tells Abraham to take his beloved son and sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys and takes Isaac up on a mountain. And just before he's about to sacrifice Isaac, God says, stop. Now, why would God do such a thing to Abraham? Well, in verse 24, James says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And here's the thing. And he was called God's friend. That's the key. He was called God's friend. See, God was using this moment to find out if Abraham really did love him. Tim Keller, who was a revered pastor from New York City, he explains this verse in James like this, quote, this is the bottom line of what James is trying to say. Do you want to see the difference between a dead faith or a living faith? A dead faith may obey God for what you get out of it or what you avoid. Living faith wants friendship with God. Living faith longs for God. Living faith wants to please God just because of who he is, not because of what you get or what you avoid. See, it's not enough for us to just say we believe in God. It's the way in which we love God that will prove the true measure of our faith in him. James says it another way in verse 15. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons also believe in God. They believe him. They believe who he is. But they don't love him. James says they shudder. They fear him. They want nothing to do with him. So let me ask you, and I'm asking myself this too. Is your love for God actively growing? Are we actively pursuing him, not merely, as Keller says, for what we get or what we avoid? Now, there's some practical ways we can do this, practical ways we can um, pursue God and nurture this actively growing faith. If you've been around the bridge for some time, you would have hear, heard this thing called spiritual pathways. Spiritual pathways are based on the belief that God has made, made each and every one of us in unique ways. As a result, different kinds of experiences help us draw closer to him. And so spiritual pathways help us identify the ways we most naturally connect with God. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Pathways, identifies nine ways, and I think you can see it up, up here on screen. Yeah, there's nine ways. One of uh, Cynthia's, my wife, her spiritual pathways, it's uh, nature. She loves nature because to her, she gets to see the beauty and the grandeur of God. Um, so when she's outside, she feels very close to him. I, on the other hand, am allergic to everything God made in nature like pollen, trees, animals, like I don't do nature. I don't do nature at all. Uh, I love solitude. I love contemplation. I love to be alone, to pray, to think, to read the Bible. It's where I feel most connected to him. Now, I can't really go through all of these. I'm not going to, um, but 
I really want to encourage you, if you don't know what your spiritual pathways are, uh, there, there are, there are tools online that can help you discover them. There's life group that you can talk about. And if you just go on, on, go on the website, look at these slides, read through them, maybe some of the particular ones will gravitate towards you. I want to move on to the second example of uh, li- living faith that uh, James talks about, and that's found in verse uh, 25 and 26. It says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The story of Rabbi, or Rabbi, Rahab, can be found in the second chapter of Joshua in the Old Testament. In this story, the Israelites have made it to the edge of the promised land and they've set up camp there. Moses has just died, and Joshua has been appointed to become the leader of the Israelites. So Joshua decides to send spies into the land and to take a look at the city of Jericho. And these spies end up in Rahab's home. She's a Canaanite, but she's heard the stories of what God has done for the Israelites. And so she believes in that God, and so she decides to hide the Israelite spies and ends up saving them from their pursuers. So what's the, what's the significance of this? Well, see, Rahab was a Canaanite woman and a prostitute. She couldn't be any more different from the Israelite spies because of her ethnicity, her gender, and her morality. But despite this vast difference, Rahab risked her life to save these men, and as a result, James counts that as proof of her faith in God. In other words, a living faith will lead us out of our comfort zones, past our normal safe social boundaries, and into opportunities where we can actively love people who are not like us. In verse 13, James says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And right at the beginning of James chapter two, he says, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the fact is, as humans, we have a natural proclivity to avoid people who are different from us. And the reason is because it could cost us something. If we spend time with the poor, it may cost us our money. If we spend time with lower class, it might cost us our reputation. If we spend time with other cultures, it may cost us our comfort. If we spend time with difficult people, there's some of you in this room, it may cost us our peace. If we spend time in a brand new life group where we have to build new relationships, it may cost us our privacy. In his book titled, When a Nation Forgets God, Dr. Erwin Lutzer writes extensively about how Hitler and Nazi ideology infiltrated a nation that professed to be a Christian nation. 
In it, he shares this eyewitness account of how some church members behaved at this time. Now, I want you to just picture this and just listen to this. It's not on the screen, but just listen to this eyewitness account. Okay, this is what it says. This is what he says. Quote, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what, we, what, what could we do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance, and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear that sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon, we heard them no more. Although years have passed, I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me, forgive us all who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. So James is asking us, if you say you have living faith, then are you truly loving your neighbor? Not the ones that are similar to us, that's easy. No, are we loving those who are different from us? And is that love motivating us to, con to connect, to serve, and to help them, even though it might cost us something in return? And if the answer is no, then all we're doing here today is just singing louder. So how do we know that we have a living faith? James says, we must love God, we must love our neighbors. Sounds pretty easy, right? Nope, not for me. I'm gonna be honest with you, this whole week while I was preparing for this, it was incredibly sobering for me. Very, very challenging. There are many times in my life where I, I've simply just gone to God for something that I need. And if you know me personally, um, you'll know that I'm a very high introvert, so uh, the notion of connecting and serving others who aren't like me especially, it's very, very daunting. Simply put, what James is suggesting here is a very, very difficult thing to do. But here's what I know. I'm convinced the only way in which we can begin to move forward into this kind of faith is when we begin to see God's love first. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. That's the key. The Bible says that before we could even begin to love God, he loved us first and it is unconditional. Psalm 193 verses 16 and 17 says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid up before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. Psalms is saying God knew us before we were born. He even knows everything that has happened and what will happen. He knows our failures. He knows our sins. He knows our shortcomings. And yet, 
The psalmist says that his thoughts towards us are precious. And they're so precious, so much so that they can't even be quantified. In other words, God loves us for us. It's not based on what we've done or what we can give him. But then the question becomes, how do we truly know that God loves us? It's because he proved it. Romans chapter five, verse eight says this, but God demonstrated, but God proved, but God justified his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, onto this earth to befriend a humanity that was spiritually poor in spirit because of our disobedience and sin. And he demonstrated his ultimate friendship with us by sacrificing his life on the cross to pay the punishment of sin on our behalf. His friendship with us literally cost him his life. John 15, 13 says it this way. Greater love has no one than this, that someone will lay down his life for his friend. See, when we truly see that God himself proved that he loves us unconditionally, that will move us towards an active and living faith that loves God and loves our neighbors. Um, in 2022, it was probably uh, one of the most challenging times in my life. I was at my lowest point, both uh, spiritually and mentally. To be frank, uh, it was hard to pray. I felt like I couldn't hear God, that he was distant from me. Uh, I described it to my, uh, my mentor once that uh, God and I were really not on speaking terms. Um, it really affected me, it affected me a lot in so many different ways. I, I didn't really want to build new relationships. I didn't want to spend time with people. I really didn't want to serve. I really wanted to hide. Have anyone, has anyone felt like that before? Uh, ancient Christian writers have described the season in a Christian's life as being called the dark night of the soul. And yes, it was very, very dark. So 2000. 13, 2023 starts and I wasn't getting much better. But uh, in April, one of my friends invited me to join him on a trip to uh, London, England to a conference called Alpha, the Alpha Leadership Conference. To be honest, I didn't really wanna go. Uh, going to a conference at that point didn't excite me, but for some reason, I kind of felt God nudging me there. So we get to this conference and it's being held at Royal Albert Hall and there are about 5,000 leaders from all over the world attending this event. And it was the first night of the conference and we were just wrapping up the last session. Nikki Gumbel, who started Alpha, he was interviewing some uh, young adults and then he was about to wrap everything off and, and then he just said, I feel like God is calling all of us to kneel down and to pray on our own. And so we all did that and I, I, I began, I got on my knees and uh, I started to pray. And as I got on my knees, all of a sudden, um, I just had this overwhelming feeling of pain and brokenness I'd experienced from the last year. It was so overwhelming. Now, um, I don't normally get this emotional, but um, 
I just started to really cry. I cried like un almost uncontrollably. And as I was praying, all I could say to God was, please, please God, uh, tell me you love me. God, I need you to tell me you love me. And I said that over and over again for what like, felt like an eternity. And after I was uh, fed up with crying and like wiping the tears from my eyes, I just joined everyone else and started worshiping God. All of a sudden, there's this older Caucasian man. He comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder. I don't know who he is, never seen him in my life. And uh, he says to me, I'm really, really, really sorry to bug you, but I've been standing here for the last 20 minutes and I feel like God is telling me, asking me to tell you something. And he says to me, I feel like God is telling me that he loves you and you're his child and he's proud of you. I'm sorry, I'm trying to not cry right now, but the minute I heard that, I just broke down and I just started ugly crying even more. I, started, I hugged this man and he just said to me over and over again, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And the most interesting thing happened. He looked at me, he says, does that make any sense? And I said, yeah, I've been asking God to tell me that for the last 20 minutes. And this man's eyes got really big and this shock came over his face and he says, what? Wait a minute, you pray for what? And I came to you and I said, what? And so that was a little interesting. I've had prophetic moments in my life where people pray for me, but I've never seen someone this shocked before. So I had to ask him, what's going on? Like, tell me about you. And you know what he said? He said, I'm a Catholic person. I come from a Catholic tradition. This has never happened before. And then it dawned on me that not only was God demonstrating again how much he loved me, he was also doing the same thing for this person too. You know, if this man had not believed in the prompting from God and he didn't choose to spend time ministering to a complete stranger, we would both have missed out on the supernatural demonstration of God's unconditional love. Let me tell you, after that encounter, we both worshiped together side by side. Two strangers who couldn't be more opposite from each other. And man, did we sing louder this time? But it was for the right reasons. Friends, I don't know where you're at in your journey of life, I don't. Uh, maybe some of you are, are exploring this Christian faith. You have lots of questions and are unsure of, unsure of what to believe. Can I just tell you, God loves you. Start there. He loves you more than you can ever imagine and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Today, I want to encourage you to talk to some pastors here. They'll help you discover what that means. For some, of, for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that our faith looks more dead than alive. Maybe there was a time when we were really passionate about Jesus, but worldly distractions and the trials of life has made our faith gone cold. I've been there, I was there. Can I tell you too, God loves you. 
He wants to forgive you. He wants to heal you because he wants you for you. So lastly, for all of us, my hope and prayer is that if you are hearing God's voice today, if you're feeling convicted by his word, let us not wait. Let us no longer hold things off. Let us respond to the Holy Spirit and turn to the loving arms of our Father. Let's pray. Father, in this holy moment, I pray for all of us, my brothers and my sisters and my friends and future friends here, and I ask, Holy Spirit, come. Make your presence felt here. Move in our hearts in such a way that we cannot deny that you are here. Give us the strength, the humility to bear down our life for you. Help us to love you for you because we know you loved us first. Help us to love our neighbors who aren't like us because in the end, we all know that we're all simply the same, spiritually poor, broken in our spirit. So Jesus, remind us who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.